I guess the first question about a path is a path to what? I mean, what are we talking about? What's the purpose? What's the direction? And that's obviously going to be the key element in defining, guiding, or assessing. Is this path working? Is, is, it, doing, is it going where I want to go? Are the ch kinds of changes happening in my life, in my heart, uh, along the lines of what feels right and good and valuable and so on, according to where I want to head? Very simple. And interestingly enough, that's exactly where the path outlined by the Buddha begins. This um, is a question of what we understand about the human experience and what we understand about what is a good direction, what's valuable and wholesome. And that understanding or that viewpoint on life uh, is the first factor of the path called samaditi or right view, wise understanding. And the whole point of it is that until there's some sense of well, something's worth doing, something like that, just something is worth doing. There's nothing happening at all, right? I mean, life just goes on in the patterns that are set in motion. One thing follows the next according to conditions, prior conditions. Now, how you think of prior conditions in a way that really makes sense, that you feel it, that you intuit it, is going to be a little different for all of us. But we know that conditions includes our outer conditions, our genetics, our where we're born, our culture, and all that stuff. But obviously, that's just given. You're already born with those genetics, with that sex, with that family, and so on. So those are conditions, but they're, you know, they're going to keep changing, but they're pretty much what they are. So what really matters then, what's really workable in terms of a path of development or whatever we're calling this path, is how we meet the circumstances and that setting up the conditions internally in the mind and the body because they're connected. And that's where we can get some purchase, some sense of uh, traction. So the way we see things and investigating, you know, what is this? What's going on here? That there's even any investigation at all is inherent in this first step, 
this right view, cultivating a wise understanding of what, you know, what's going on. So, um, we're going to talk a lot more about that step, that aspect, or that factor of the path, really than about all the others, because it encompasses all the others. Because part of wise understanding is understanding the whole path, and therefore the path is part of wise understanding, right? It's like you know what the path is, and that's wise, something like that. So when I talk about the path now, I am going to be using this sort of framework that the Buddha presented because I think it's useful. Uh, it's t tested over time by millions or even billions of people. And frankly, as clever as it is, it's also general enough that we can apply it here and now to this life, this culture, these genetics, these economic conditions. It's that, you know, it's, it's worked in, you know, fourth century China and, you know, fifth century or fourth century BC, India, and 10th century Burma. You know, it's had a lot of different cultural contexts. And it's got one feature that one finds a lot in, in the Buddha's teachings, which is that it's big enough to encompass the totality of life if we understand it that way. And it's small enough to actually remember and work with. So that's helpful. And it's extremely elegant. It's really elegant. So as part of this understanding something about the nature of the path, this beginning with wise view, wise understanding, there's a few assumptions that are basic to how I think it's useful to talk about the path. And the first is that it encompasses the totality of our lives. There's nothing left out. It's not like church or temple on Saturday or Sunday, and then there's the rest of the time when you're outside the purview of, of the path. Your family life is not left out. Formal practices are not left out your 
uh, ongoing physical needs are not left out. Your work is not left out. Your lifestyle, your engagement with society, and all of the most subtle features of the mind are included. Everything. As we'll see when we get to the specifics, some of the details of the path, this is a very important point because the mind segments things, divides things up. It says, that's my spiritual life or my religious life or my life of, of developing the, you know, the, the finer qualities. And then there's all this other stuff because it kind of gives us a lot of wiggle room. You know, we want to have our cake and eat it too, kind of. Uh, we want all the fruits of, let's say, something like freedom. But at the same time, we'd like to kind of, you know, get drunk from time to time or, you know, whatever it is that seems to be like, wait a minute, that doesn't fit. Or, you know, being kind to our children or our neighbors is just not something we want to bother with. It's like, leave that out. I'm, I'm a good meditator, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, 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 um, it's not workable. So the totality of life is the path. And another abiding fact is that this question of, is this really headed the right direction, is a, always a legitimate question. Nothing is given. There's no request for blind faith. You're always testing it yourself. Right? And that, of course, gives you the freedom to question authority. But it gives you the responsibility to question authority, which means taking that authority on yourself. And when the Buddha was asked, how do you know what's path and not path? You know, you're going to die, Mr. Buddha guy. Well, how do you know? How are we, how are we supposed to determine? And he gave some really simple criteria, you know. Does it lead to relinquishment or accumulation? Does it lead to self-aggrandizement or humility and effacement? Does it lead to uh, you know, kindness or cruelty? And does it lead to being 
bound and fettered and tied down or to being unfettered. See for yourself, right? Does it lead to being uh, energetic or lazy and slovenly? Things like this, very sensible things that you look at your own life, the trajectory of your life, if you've been on the path for a while, whatever this path is, and you assess, is what's going on? Is this working out? Is this really working out? Not because some teacher said so, or the Buddha said so, or anything. You check for yourself constantly. So that's another feature that there's uh, that it's con that that the path conforms to really the most um, uh, wholesome values, and if if you can relate to those values I just said, and there's a few others in that list of eight. They're of the same tone. Then, great. Reference that. But check it. <coughs> so, at some point, one has to kind of put a stake in the ground. It's a stake that comes from your experience. And it also comes, frankly, from people that you trust, from people who are wise, people who have lived into these questions. Because, you know, we, none of us can know everything that's needed to know about what's possible of the good in this life. So if you think that you have to be your own authority from beginning to end, it's going to be a problem because there'll be a lot that you won't figure out in your short little lifetime, that's for sure. So um, where that fits in is how do I develop right view? How do I know what the path is? Simple question, right? How do I come to this wise understanding? And there's one key fact that ties in so intimately with exactly the practice that you've been doing and the outlook behind that practice. And the Buddha said there's two conditions necessary for the arising of right view. The voice of another and wise attention. Wise attention. Right? So get the picture. It's really a simple picture. The voice of another, speak the truth, and wise attention. Listen deeply. That says a lot of things. One thing it says you don't know it all. And so listen, read, 
learn from sources, whether it's the literal spoken voice of another or some other voice of another, there's going to be stuff that you don't know. And when something wise is being spoken, wise attention is essential or ain't nothing going to happen. It can be a lot of wise words and they don't go anywhere. They don't land for any number of reasons. Maybe you're already filled up. You think you know everything or you're too busy or, you know, the mind is too cluttered or, you know, you think the path is over there. So someone's saying, hey, hey, and you're not listening because you got this idea, right? So wise attention, the voice of another and wise attention. There's a beautiful teaching where uh, the Buddha is kind of describing step by step how this liberation process can happen. He's real big on this kind of step by step stuff, you know, conditions, causes and conditions. And uh, in this elegant description of the how in the mind the conditions are set up for suffering to arise, you get to the step where they're suffering. And then, based on their being suffering, there's going to be either derangement because the suffering is too great to bear, you don't know what to do about it, or search. It's going to be search. So perhaps some of you can relate to that, turning to the path because life is hard. And you were driven to it because you couldn't figure it all out by yourself. It's a very human moment. Does anyone have a word or two that can help me with my suffering? Like that, really, you know. So now, now the mind, the heart might be ready. And so then one goes to a teacher you look for some source. Maybe you go to a bookstore. There were no bookstores in the Buddha's time. Or you go to a lecture. Or you go to a retreat. Or you go to a human being. Whatever. And lend ear. You listen. And then there's this process of reflective acceptance of the teachings, reflective. You don't swallow it whole. I know you guys know that. I can tell by looking at you. But it, I want you to know that at no point was it expected that you, anything would be swallowed whole. It's reflected upon. And then some understanding arises. And based on that understanding, there's a kind of a zeal. Wow. You know, something is gotten, like, grrr, you get it, somehow. You haven't had the deep experience yet, maybe, but something clicks. And, and there's this enthusiasm, this energy, that then is placed into one's practice. There's confidence, and from confidence comes 
uh, you know, a certain application and calm, and from the calm comes the seeing things directly, and then you really know, you know, this whole process unfolds. But it's, so this wise view, this first aspect of this so-called noble eightfold path starts with a wise understanding. And the voice of another and wise attention and then there's conditions for, for the arising of right view that foster it. And this is really important because it's really easy to fall into a kind of idea like right view is just this perspective, just this understanding. No, that's the fruit. But right view, like all the things we're going to talk about tonight, is a practice. It's a practice. This is really important. It's not like you should just arrive at it, like you should just kind of something seems smart and you say, yeah, I got it. No. How do you practice it? How do you develop it? It's a real pragmatic approach to cultivating the mind. And so there's, and this is like this list of five things, and it's not going to sound like just go to a meditation center and be in silence all the time. So you might prepare to be surprised. It does include tranquility and insight. And insight in this case is a, um, includes a, the fairly elevated insight of meditation retreat and so on. That is part of it and the tranquility, as you say. Discussion, study, right? And um, at the moment, the fifth doesn't come to me. But it's so interesting that built right into this first element of the path is a direct acknowledgement of talking about it. And to talk about it, what do you need? Someone to talk with, right? Someone who's a spiritual friend, Kalyanamita, a friend on the path. Now that friend on the path might be a, a teacher, but that's a friend on the path. The fact that we have this constructs about what a teacher is, and it's like this weird thing we've built up about teachers. This is a spiritual friend whatever other way you want to talk about her or him. And this process of engaging together to discover and bringing that back into your silent practice, bringing it back into how you live your life and so on, is an inherent part of coming to an understanding that's developed enough to penetrate the gloom of our conditioning. So, um, there's certain things that are named as really essential in the view part of it, not the practice part, like, what, okay, what kind of view are we talking about here, right? And really, the first 
is understanding the uh, value of giving. That's like the first step on the path, even before morality. Another is understanding what we would just say in normal parlance, right from wrong. Understanding what brings harm to yourself, to other beings, to both. And, you know, as my family would have said, what makes a mensch? You know, what makes a decent person? And you, you know that, and if you don't know that, you need to learn it. Because if you don't learn it, the mind will stay so mired in crudeness, so rough, that it can't understand finer teachings. Meditation will always be shaky. There will never be a sense of uh, safety in yourself and others because there's always bad behavior, harmful behavior. So that's right view, kind of the starting point is like you would expect, right from wrong, being a decent person, being a good person. Another piece of it is cause and effect, right? So we might have this sense, my actions don't matter, right? I'm going to die anyway, whatever. But when you understand how you're situated, how we are together situated in this world, and if you begin to understand in the world of the mind, likewise, there's cause and effect. When you just think thoughts of, you know, again, roughness, and when you think thoughts of, uh, uh, well, harm would be obvious, but also just idle chatter that is, just makes a lot of noise in the mind, that these things have an effect. Now, we have this inclination in our culture to replace what I'm saying, cause and effect, with good and evil. But that's a very different way of thinking. This is more like a natural law rather than moral stricture. You understand? So there's a real sense of responsibility in understanding cause and effect. You're stepping into life responsibly. And the refinement of the understanding of cause and effect is no small potatoes. It's a big deal. It's very subtle. It's a long process. And for anyone who, for example, has considered questions of social justice and medical ethics and so on, right from wrong ain't so black and white. It's not easy. It's really subtle. It's really difficult. It's not trivial. But cause and effect is always, always operating. And, and that's part of this wise view, right understanding. And now we come to something that you have some familiarity with directly. It's like, oh, that sounds like Buddhism now, which is right view is understanding the Eightfold Path, I mean the um, Four Noble Truths, right? 
So that means that we're talking about really getting the human dilemma, right? Getting the human dilemma, suffering. You know, the, the, the suffering of being born in this sensitive organism with this crazily powerful, sensitive mind in a world that's always changing and contingent, and that's a setup. We've been set up. Go talk to your mom about that one. You know, here it is. This is it. As I said, being born already a mistake. You know, this is it. Okay, it's part of the situation. But, of course, that's only part of it. We begin to look at underneath that, the hunger that drives it, the greed, hatred, and delusion that keeps the, the organism teeming and these hungers being fed, you know, uh, being uh, maintained. And the tension of the hunger creates the tension of the mind and the tension of the body. And always in agitation, the ignorance doesn't have a chance to break through because the mind can't quite get clear. And we begin to see things from this contorted standpoint of, you know, me, the center of the universe. Whether it's me shrinking, I'm completely self-obsessed, or me, it, you know, um, in my grandiosity, it's all, you know, that's, that's uh, obviously self-centered. And from that ignorance, we completely lose track of that any path is possible, necessary, or whatever, and we're back where we started. So this first noble truth of suffering, the hunger that drives it, and the ignorance that sustains it, and the potential for freedom. Inherent in this teaching that the cessation of hunger is the cessation of suffering. And then the path is the fourth truth. But let's just stay for just a minute with that third truth about cessation, freedom, all that stuff. Because the way we understand that reveals a breadth of the path that I don't think we've really touched yet. I think you got some taste of the cessation of hunger and you know, what that sense, maybe some sense of possibility of the diminishing of hunger in your own life and what that feels like, the diminishing uh, or the kind of less often dominance of greed and hatred. You know, I think you have some sense of that and the sense of how the dropping away of that is not just a gray nothing. It actually can be very beautiful as the organism continues to exist in a sense of intimacy with the world, free of self-obsession and fully fluid and engaged with actuality, with, you know, with this life. But what about the cessation of ignorance, the collapse of the belief system of self and self-obsession that comes from it. What about a uh, such profound insight that the clinging 
onto experience moment by moment of you know self in relation of the things that we desire of the circumstances that the clinging is just ah, just nothing to drive it because these things all work together as a self-sustaining system these hungers keep us as I said, tense and preoccupied and grasping. They keep the ignorance intact. And meanwhile, the ignorance keeps the hungers operating because we really believe we can get this taken care of. We really believe we can get satisfied. So we just keep feeding and doing the best we can to set our lives up. I think I've just about got it. Now I've just about got it. Whoops. Now I've just about got it. And meanwhile, you know, all these things are happening. The body is aging and someone doesn't behave the way you want and then the economy crashes. Oh, I almost had it, but I'll try again. I know I can get it. That's ignorance. So the ignorance and the, and the, and the becoming and the urging for pleasure they keep each other going. So when we understand this diminishing and this cessation, let's not just fixate on the hungers. Let's get the sense of wisdom also penetrating. The system of the house, it's one of the, one of the similes that comes up a lot is like a house and the ridge pole has been shattered can't rebuild a house without the ridge pole in those days. These days you go down to the lumber yard and get another one. But you know what I'm saying? You just can't, there's no house. That's it. So, so that's an aspect of right view, this understanding the Four Noble Truths. And it's all stuff that can be touched, just as you've been touching it. See for yourself, this ehipasiko. Go see for yourself. Come and see, take a look. Try it out, real direct. So, with just those basics set up, we now have something really important that we weren't quite ready to name a moment ago about the path, which is, this is the direction. I have had some experience, let's say, you are realizing, okay, feeding and feeding and arranging and manipulating and, you know, fighting against and accumulating and building up this self and building up this life, I will never, it will never be satisfying. It will never endure. It's a, it's a project that cannot be completed. It's a satisfaction that cannot be won. It's never going to work. And you get it. You get it. And you simultaneously get in your gut that in this quality of release comes ease 
and with the ease comes uh, genuine joy, profound, enduring joy, and the capacity to be in the world in a profoundly wholesome way. So now we know something about the path from, you know, a deeper level. Does it conduce to relinquishment or does it lead to more accumulation and self-making? And now you can do some assessment on your own. See for yourself. Very direct. But this leads us, fortunately, now, I told you we would spend a fair bit of time on just that first path factor of right view, because without it, the rest of it is, there's no ground, you know, there's no foundation. But we have a little bit of a, you feel like you have a foundation? Like, you know what I'm talking about? This is making some sense? Okay, great. So, so the, Uh, path begins, interestingly enough, even with just a fragment of right view. It's just something about the value of giving. Some, just a little bit about right and wrong. You know, just a little bit, like, okay, stealing, bad. You know, or killing bad. Just that one piece, right? We're talking about a savage people here, right? You look around the world and there's plenty of people who don't think that killing is out of line. It's a way of life. So it sounds a little funny to us here in our protected situation, but there are plenty, I assure you, of people and cultures in the world where that's not the case. And and just that little fragment then begins to work its way, to worm its way through you. And, and the potential in a virtuous cycle for this morality to grow finer and finer, you know, is, is, is very real and will, will perpetuate, will continue, because it feels good. One who kills others never feels safe. One who harms, beats, and steals from others is always worried about getting beaten, is always worried about their things being stolen. And within their culture, everybody around them is worried about getting beating and beaten, and so the tension grows in the whole society and you go the other direction and you sense the growing goodness. It does happen. So, this turning that we just talked about of really getting at some level, whatever level it is, it might be a real initial level that I can't possibly feed this beast enough. And, oh, the sweetness of releasing that endeavor, of releasing the project of trying to get these hungers filled up. Oh. You get it and you can feel just a touch of the joy of 
you know, as the, let's say, the hunger for becoming has just diminished, and you can finally be with people and, you know, just really see them as they are and enjoy whatever is present, and they don't have to aggrandize you, and they don't have to feed your machine, and it's a whole different quality of being. But the point is you experience it. That's the whole point of what I'm saying here. I'm trying to get something where you can feel it, right? Because it's this movement from orienting towards getting, making, having, filling up to the movement of release and really feeling the joy of that. That one move is based on, it is a, is a shift of understanding. It's, it's a paradigm shift of your whole life. This is good. Get as rich as possible or as powerful as possible or as famous as possible or whatever it is that you're valuing, to develop this quality of release, of love, of compassion. That's the shift I'm talking about. That shift now aims the life in a different direction. Just because you see it differently, you know? You just see it differently. If you think, for example, that uh, education is a big waste of time, it's for sissies, then you're not going to educate yourself because you think what's good is something else. If you think education is really valuable, you'll educate yourself and you'll shift your life in that direction naturally to make that happen. If you believe that celery is healthy, you'll start eating more celery because you believe in it. Right? It's real simple. Action follows, but first has to come the understanding, whether it's right or wrong, that's going to change the action. That change, that movement, that aiming of the heart is the point I'm talking about. The heart is aimed based on how you see the world, and that aiming is the second factor of the path. That's the sama sankapo, that's right intention right intention, right thought, right intention, right direction of the mind. And it flows out of how you see the world. But it's, it's a powerful factor to name on its own, right intention, because, hear me well, out of intention comes all action. Based on the direction of the mind flows how you speak to others, how you act in the uh, ecoverse, you know, in the in the world, in the in Gaia, it directs how you decide to dedicate your life, your livelihood, and so on. It directs how much you want to get intoxicated or even whether you do steal, or your, the quality of your sexual morals, and so on, is all based on this. So this intention is essential to understand. Right intention. 
is, the, is any given moment the mind oriented towards this relinquishment or towards accumulation? That's a shift of intention. Is any given moment is this mind oriented towards cruelty or compassion? Towards anger? Towards love? Right? Really fundamental shifts from which comes the whole uh, ethical aspect of the path of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. None of it comes without right intention. And here again we have a risk. The risk is that you see right intention just as a certain intention or the direction of the mind, but not as the practices to cultivate that intention. See how easy that is? It's like view. There's just the view. There's not the practice to develop right view. Right? Those practices could be things like reading and study and conversation that we talked about. But there's a million details of how you do that. You know, you can have plenty of practice of right view on, on the internet. And you can have practices of wrong view on the internet, obviously. And you can have practices of right view that look like schools and universities, and plenty of wrong view is cultivated in universities, believe you me. And you can have practices of right view in your toilet reading. You know, it's all over the place. What you talk about, what you leave aside talking about, it's all part of it. Right? The kinds of thoughts you have, the things you reflect on. Practice of right view and right intention is the same way. Moment by moment, you can check what's the intention now. That's a very subtle, demanding practice. You know, it's basically nothing short of continuous mindfulness in the ethical domain. It's it's almost ridiculously demanding. And if you enter, let's say, a monastic path, you're going to have a lot of support for that. If you live out in this culture, bring your shotgun. You know, it's not going to be easy. So, uh, A place that might be more workable for the development of right intention is what I call the episodic aspect of right intention. Just for this meeting, I'm going to try to treat this person with respect and kindness, no matter how they treat me. It's got a beginning and an end, and you've got a prayer for doing it. <laughs> you know? It's not like my whole life. You know? It's not like every instant. It's like, okay, just this one time. I'm going to see my brother next week. And I've got, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, and it could be a business meeting. It could be a family meeting. It could just be, for this meal, I'm going to really remember where this food came from the whole time I eat it, cultivating humility 
gratitude. You know, that's also episodic. And the episodes can be little, you know, like this one phone call. Or they can be bigger. But when you get really big, it's better to talk about this other time scale of intention that I just call overarching, which is sort of the direction of our lives, which is this big shift I talked about. But there's something really beautiful about this. Uh, probably best conveyed by this uh, a, a story of I had been thinking about this and working it through and came to this formulation of moment by moment intention and the episodic and the overarching. And I'm working, it's early in the morning and I'm, I'm writing. And this is a long time ago. My, my uh, youngest son was still living at home. And I looked at the clock and I said, it's time to wake him up for school. So I had to stop the writing I was doing. And, but I had been watching my mind, you know, I was writing and watching my mind. You know, you gotta work from something. And uh, so I noticed this loving kindness, you know, this care come up. And I watched as I set down that work and I went to walk up the stairs. My office was in, in the basement. And I want notice with each step that I could be noticing each step and noticing this intention of care, of kindness. But then I just sort of lightened up and I wasn't trying to notice every step. And I noticed I was kind of floating in the uh, over, overview intention of offering this love. I didn't have to be aware at every moment because that was carried within it. And then I began to look and I saw, wow, my whole life is intended to be directed this way. Trust me, I don't always succeed. But, wow, you can rest in that some. You can, there's something there and the stronger it gets, the more workable your life becomes. You can, if you will, trust yourself to incline towards the wholesome. Wow, that was so cool to see that, that it was working. I wasn't doing my, I'm gonna you know, do this thing at all. <laughs> and I was carried by it. So these things can be cultivated, and as they're cultivated, they begin to take care of you. So something like the practice of loving kindness is a practice of intention, guiding the mind in that way. Right? Whether or not it has some effect that you know about now or not. Right? The practice of compassion. Having a, a Buddha or a cross is an intention practice. It's to guide the mind in the direction of whatever that symbol takes or represents as good. So there's, a lot, there's all kinds of creative things you can do in terms of what intention means to you, but also relationally you can practice. And you know, it's like, okay, let's, let's be together in just this one project that you and I are gonna do next week. Let's hold it in mind to treat each other with respect, but also when our customers come in, let's really, really practice kindness and we'll remind each other and stuff like that, right? 
So you can do this stuff together. And of course, there are all kinds of people doing clever stuff like this, whether they call it Buddhist or not, who cares? So that then brings us, as I said, to the right speech, action, and livelihood. And I'm not going to go into all the details. I'm going to try and catch some highlights for you because overall, what those three together take is the lived ethical life. It's not about special practices. It's just really how you live your life with decency. So right speech, kind of the, the you know, nutshell version, which is really a good version. I mean, this is not, it's just that one can unpack all these things I'm about to say. Um, so, speech that brings harm to others, harm to oneself, and harm to both. Speech that brings forth the good, obvious distinction. So, we can ask, is what I'm about to say true or untrue, to the best of my knowledge. As, that's as good as you can do, right? And this is the naughtiest question that I'm going to present. Is it beneficial or unbeneficial? That's like the King Solomon question. I mean, who knows, right? But, but the wiser and the more discerning you get, you do learn. You, you do get better at discerning. Is this going to be helpful or not? You may have all kinds of good advice, and if the person's not ready to hear it, or it's going to make them clam up more, that wouldn't be beneficial, right? If you are going, if you're ready to stand up for social justice, and it's instantly going to get you shot, and no one will even put it on the television news, you know, there's just no point, maybe. That's another judgment, too. But you know what I'm saying? Who knows? But some things are clear, some things are less clear. And so, just asking the question is where you need to begin. Is this beneficial? And is it timely? Is now the right time to say it? Or when is the right time to say it? And here's a question with which we can fool ourselves, but hopefully not all the time. Is it spoken with a mind of loving kindness? It's like, I really love you, but it's disgusting when you eat with your mouth open, or something like that. You know, but like if, if it doesn't really come from love, it's not going to be so beneficial. You know? And it's going to come out different. And it's going to affect your own heart differently. And then there's other ways of looking at it, like there's certain kinds of speech that are just said, no, don't do this, you know, gossip and harsh speech and cruel speech. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that as well, but that's, that's enough there. The important point for us is that speech includes all forms of communication. It's, an inter it's a relational act. It's a communication act. And so right speech includes right email, mm -hmm. 
includes right posting on forums, right speech includes right video and right photography, and by extension, to some extent, you can say right art. And then again, we begin to see, see this is part of the question of, is any part of my life left out of this path? If I take this eightfold path, does it really cover everything? So if there's something you see in your life and you think it's not covered, think again and find where it fits. And I'm naming as an example all of our electronic communications as coming under right speech. Um, so right action is this sort of bucket of, you know, morality. You know, it has to do with the sexual, how we are with uh, sexuality and, I mean, the basics, you know, don't, uh, don't have sex with someone who's, um, well, the moral systems change, but, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, but we can say, well, okay, that is betrothed or, you know, too young or things like that. It, it could get into, you know, debates about what you can and can't say, but check your own heart, you know, and I'll just leave it at that for now. But it includes not stealing, and in the case of monastics, only taking what's freely offered, what's given to you, including food. But for lay people, uh, how you are respectful with other people's material belongings. And uh, intoxicants comes under this bucket. And what's the point of that? Well, you go out, you have a good time, you wake up with a hangover, what's the big deal? The big deal is that while you're drunk, you're insane. And you lose your moral compass. That's the big deal, right? So it's, it's not a random, it's not like, again, it's not, it's all based on cause and effect. And um, killing comes here. This is where that lives. But again, you can see how with right intention, you, you, you get the sense of, well, that would be an intention of cruelty and so on. And by the way, as far as killing, let's say an enemy combatant or something, at the moment of killing, there is ill will. You want that person dead. So let's not get too patriotic and lose sight of killing as killing. Okay? Now, I'm not making a judgment for someone else's decisions and how they run their lives and if, uh, you know, running drones and dropping bombs is okay or not okay for them, but I am laying out something really clear that there is cause and effect involved here and it's very serious. And it's much bigger than that moment of action. It has repercussions that go on for years. Right? I'll, I'll leave it at that. And then finally, 
in this ethical piece, right livelihood. Now, that could have been covered by right speech and right action. Why is right livelihood important? Why is it named separately? Because you do it all the time. It's a big deal. And it bends the mind in the direction of what you do. If you have a job that involves cultivating kindness and generosity with others, bingo, jackpot. What an amazing thing. If you have a job that requires you to harm others, to sell intoxicants or kill beings, a job that the ethical system in the workplace forces you to lie, cheat, and steal, that's going to affect the mind, cause and effect. Right? There's no, there's no bones about it. Yes, you need to make a living. You may have children to support, but it's got an effect on, on, on the heart. That's a sad truth. And many people, I, 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 I weep to think how many people would be literally choosing homelessness and poverty or working for a company that's doing something dastardly. It's terribly sad. And yet, we want to acknowledge the, the powerful effect that one's workplace and livelihood has on, on the heart. So we come to this last section of the path. And it's often called the, you know, uh, the first section is often called the uh, wisdom section, right view and right intention. And then the morality section, right speech, action, livelihood. And then this section is sometimes called the concentration section or bhavana, cultivation. And it's cultivating the mind. So I want to stop for just a moment and Note what that means in the big picture before I say too much about the specifics. The morality is a practice, right? You, you not only have decent, dec decency as a value, but you continue to cultivate it. And you begin cultivating it by working at the level of action. You abstain from harmful actions, harmful things. Right? Whether, it's important, whether or not you understand why. So there might not be any real deep, you know, uh, uh, understanding behind it, except that this is good, I can feel it's good, and I'm going to develop my life 
to not kill and not steal and so on. When we take this step into right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, now we're talking about working with the mind at its roots. And when we work with the mind at its roots, the underlying uh, binding or understanding is shifting so that the, the moral beauty comes out naturally from underneath, not from on top by trying to make your, you know, hold your behavior in check. See the difference? Bottom up, top down. Okay. So this right effort, which I could go into at some length, it's a beautiful teaching, but I don't want to keep you, you know, I don't want to overtax the mind in this already long talk, can be condensed down to out with the bad, in with the good. Okay. Now, if I break it down just a little bit more, but that's really as far as you need to break it down, really. That is the basics. Abandoning the unwholesome. Well, I should actually start. Preventing the arising of the unwholesome that hasn't arisen yet. So. We're talking about at the level of the mind, you know, like thought by thought, moment by moment, urge by urge. It's really quite like, oh wow, that's a lot. Prevention of the unwholesome, the arising of the unwholesome. Abandoning the already arisen unwholesome. Right? So now there's some kind of creepy thought or nasty thought or something like that that's arisen, or maybe just a thought of, you know, that, that is like a, a, th a, a mind's thought, a mind state and churning of psychological confusion or self-hatred, right? That's also included here. And abandoning is, how do I release that? So this is the, this is the place where psychotherapy lives, right here, is the abandoning the unwholesome that's already arisen. So that's the out with the bad, and then the other two are in with the good. Cultivating the wholesome that's not yet arisen. This is where you practice loving kindness, you practice concentration, you practice mindfulness, you develop the energy of the mind, all of those things, that's where that cultivation lives. And then the last one is sort of like, yes, the maintenance and increase of the already arisen wholesome. Now that's quite beautiful because it's saying, give attention to the good, keep it up. You know, there's some, there's some concentration, yeah, maintain it, develop it further, good job. There's some mindfulness, good show. Keep it up. You know, really go for it. And don't 
don't take it for granted. Maintenance and increase. Don't take it for granted. Right? So out with the bad, in with the good, right? I wasn't kidding. But a right effort also implies the energy on the path, the vitality, the commitment, the diligence. These all come under there as well. So now we come to the two that are the most familiar to one who says, what is the Buddhist path? Well, mindfulness. Well, that's the next one. Mindfulness, sati, samasati, right mindfulness. And how do you develop right mindfulness? And the practices that are being engaged in the West these days are pretty good. They are a sliver of what's possible, but they're pretty good. They're clever, some of them. They're workable in a life that's really busy. And there's a lot of other stuff you could do that's really also clever profoundly effective. So understanding what mindfulness is, what's, I'm not going to say mindfulness now because now it gets more important. Sati. Mindfulness is a much later construction of, it's like, how old is that word? It's less than 100 years old, even as a word. And, and it's way too much. I really could talk for hours just about sati and I'm not going to, you can relax. But it's good to remember that it has this aspect of remembering in it. It's like remembering the object, remembering the awareness, just the remembering of the body, is remembering that you're paying attention to the body. It's not just attention. It's that has this quality of knowing you're paying attention, it has this quality that brings you into the moment with intimacy with experience. It's not just sort of like, oh yeah, I really am firing this rifle now. That's just attention, right? And it's in inherently linked to the rest of the Eightfold Path. It's linked to morality inexorably. To extract it from morality is deadly. And also, it uh, has relational practices, as you may have discovered, that really can be helpful. So you know that. So I won't say a lot about it. And sama samadhi, right concentration. The main thing I want to say about that, again, it's a deep, deep teaching, really important. But I'll try to just get to a couple of essences because then we can wrap up. Sama Samadhi. The probably single biggest misconception about concentration is that it's a forcing of the mind onto an object. Like I'm going to concentrate in math class today. And kind of what goes with it is black, I don't want to. And 
what goes with it is a sense of musculature, force. And what goes with it is, um, therefore, the tension behind that force and the tenuousness in holding it. And that tension itself, ultimately, is going to defeat the ability for this concentration to ripen and endure. So concentration has two primary qualities. The first is tranquility of body-mind, right? Serenity. Concentration is relaxed. Second, the concentrated mind is gathered, concentric, around a center. Right? And what's really often not understood is that is what I if I, I can't the easiest thing I could say is the power of the concentrated mind. When concentration comes together with the mindfulness and the energy and so on, it penetrates to the core of whatever it is that is being observed. It's like it's like an alchemy that comes in. And the quality of experience when concentration is strong radically shifts and perception becomes qualitatively more refined. It's like a quantum leap that can happen when concentration gets strong. And so the value of it places it at uh, uh, it's like a uh, a reason to do extended formal practice because our lives are not inclined to this level of refinement normally. It's possible to live the path fruitfully without it, but there are certain kinds of insights that typically, I don't want to be categorical and say always, that typically only come when the mind is refined and, and uh, trained in this way. Which brings me to this shattering of the ridgepole, like really seeing clearly the dissolving of reality because the mind is no longer fixing on anything and you get directly insight into the insubstantiality. It's a different kind of experience when you 
have sufficient stability of mind to really see, not at all just in thought and not just a casual glimpse, but to really see that this self is completely a fabrication through and through, empty as empty can be. And you see it so clearly that you can never see the same again. Like having seen how a magician does a trick, every time you see that trick, what are you going to do? Like fall into believing it again? Because that was fun? You've been changed, right? You've been changed in a minute when you saw how he did the trick. You saw that the card was up his sleeve, or that he asked you to look away, or that, you know, or that the, uh, the rest of the woman's body, she's actually standing up in that thing, she's not lying down, or whatever. And then you see it again, it's like, that's amazing! I don't think so. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, how are you going to go back to the ignorance? That's the power of insight, and that's the role of concentration. But it also contributes all the way along, in, you know, incrementally. So the closing move here. As you move through this path, it's like all at once, and yet also you can see it as, you know, okay, well, you've got to start with some right view. That's going to shift your intention. That's going to lead to more wholesome action. That's going to begin to calm the mind, train the mind a little bit. Right effort comes in. You begin to, you know, um, uh, the unwholesome stuff begins to diminish. The wholesome stuff begins to increase. So now I can do the more refined training of the mind, develop the mindfulness, develop the concentration. There's some insight. And what does the insight do? It shifts how you understand the world back to right view your right view now is even more refined, right? And therefore, the intention is more subtle in its fit with the wholesome, which means that your morality becomes even deeper, which means that the quality of cultivating the mind becomes even more refined, because now your basic set point of tension in life through different livelihood and behaviors is so much more stable. And the mindfulness and the concentration get even deeper now. And so it goes in this cycle. But really, they're all happening. You know, you're practicing all of them all at once. Many different concentration practices, many ways of practicing with right effort and so on. So that's an understanding of the path that might be interesting. It's really an introduction, obviously. But it's an introduction that I hope is somewhat intriguing. Like, there's something here, something that makes sense, uh, even though it comes from a you know, what we call a religion, I really don't think the Buddha saw things in religious terms. I don't think that concept was there. He was looking at the mind. He was like the original, you know, I, it, not just a psychologist. I mean, he was like, you know, profound observer of experience. 
But you might say 2,500 years ago, I don't know. But I'm hoping that what you just heard touches something universal enough that it inspires you, that it intrigues you, and gives you a sense of the path being available to you, that it's real human. You know, it unfolds in our relationships, it unfolds at work, it unfolds in our formal practices, it unfolds in just my thinking, right? And, thank you. Um, and when we explore this, for example, in dialogue, you know, this was a lot of words in this talk. When we explore it in dialogue, or when you contemplate it in, you know, in the future, in your own life, I really, really want to encourage you to take whatever piece of it most inspires you, feels most accessible and real and important, and take it just into your heart. Just be with that one piece, because the way it works, it's holographic. The whole thing spreads to the whole thing. If you start with just one little piece of morality or just one little piece of mindfulness, just one little piece of right view, it catalyzes the rest at its own pace, in its own way, according to your conditions. So that's my hope for you.